I've heard it said this way that uh, scientists or you know atheist rationalist types and fundamentalists have agreed on the playing field. They've both agreed that Genesis is a factual account of what happened at the beginning of creation. They just disagree over the truth claim. Right? So they've both misunderstood what the Genesis account is purporting to talk about. So, so you don't think that the Genesis account is meant to be literal? No. I think that the people who told the Genesis story didn't understand that our subjective senses weren't presenting us with objective reality. So they rolled everything together. They rolled their account together of what reality is with claims about how material reality came to be. But it wasn't really until Galileo that anybody said, um, hey, I'm pretty sure that my subjective reality is different from what's actually out there. That my subjective senses are not giving me, let's say, a factual account of what's happening in the material universe. I don't, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, we have traditions and practices that go back thousands of years, whether that be um, um, medicinal practices. We have traditions in China and India that go back several thousand years. We have astronomy and astrology that go back. And no, they couldn't explain it the way that we explain it, but they've been practicing those things for a long time, trying to explain it in the best way that they could. I, I, I kind of feel like we're arguing over something that um, we need to be careful about because our perspective has changed in modernity. We have some different words and different ways of saying those things that just didn't exist in that same way. But that doesn't mean they're any less valuable or that they weren't doing the scientific work that they were capable of doing at that point in time. Um, I don't know that we have to settle it 100%. May I'm willing to live with some ambiguity and acknowledge that like they did not see the world that I the, the way that I do. It just wasn't there. Um, but there were amazing things going on. We know that uh, some of the herbs that are still used today back then were life-saving elements or were hugely important to the culture they were in and we're still using them the same way and maybe now we could distill them down in a chemistry lab and figure out what it is about them that makes it work but that actually doesn't change the property of the plant and the way that it works and what it does so i just i'm, I'm not sure that we have to settle it completely what, what do you mean settle what whether objectivity is the thing or subjectivity is thing whether they were telling what becomes a myth or whether they were accounting for exactly what happened for me, I've just had to go forward and, and let things fall apart and be what they are. I love astronomy. I was going to be an astrophysicist. That was my dream um, before I got a call to ministry. And, and so I love this stuff and, and have felt this struggle in a very personal way between being dedicated to my craft of being a pastor and being able to enjoy science because they often stand in opposition to each other. And it's just been recently, um, in the last year or so, that I've I've opened up that door again to to enjoying science and what's out there and what I see. Not because it was even necessarily a conscious decision I was making. It was a it was a worldview kind of element that had been set up for me. That even though I know better intellectually, and even though I love looking at. Hubble pictures and all the amazing things they represent. Um, I wasn't allowing myself to partake of that because of a perceived threat that had been built in there. I don't, that may not make any sense. So no, that I makes perfect sense because yeah. I, I came up in that same environment where I was taught deeply to, to distrust, you know, quote what science has to say. And I think one of the things that when you come out of that mindset that you begin to see is that, Science is not a person. Science doesn't speak with a voice, right? Science is a methodology which humans use to try and understand patterns about reality. But science doesn't tell a story. 
human subjectivity tells a story, right? Human subjectivity can take the facts that we garner through the scientific process and tell a story about reality, but that story is there for us to use to give us power over reality. So, um, so when, you know, when I was a kid, like I used to listen to a lot of Christian radio and there would be these, well, I still love a lot of the music. (laughs) I I still love a lot of the music that I listened to back then, but I was thinking about this creation moments. Do you guys remember that? It would come on, uh, I would listen to this alternative Christian music station. And at some point during the three hours a day that they could, uh, that they could play the, their Christian alternative music, this creation moments would come on and, uh, and this guy would say, science says X, Y, Z, and here's why the Bible is more true than science with regard to this, right? So I, I, I understand deeply this distrust of science that's been programmed into you, but the strange thing about it, for, especially for evangelical kids who are like going to go to college or whatever, is that you're really not given any tools for dealing with the cognitive dissonance that you're going to have to face. They just say be careful about such and such, you know, the devil is going to try and tempt you away from truth. Right. And then, but you're supposed to get an A in your biology class anyway. Right. So you're expected to sort of give unto Caesar, what is Caesar science and give unto God, what is God's truth when you go to church. Right. Um, and that's, that involves a massive amount of cognitive dissidence, especially for a systemizer like me. And I'm, I'm sure like you too, Paul, where you want all of your truths to exist in the same framework. You don't want to try and have to to create a psychic divide where these truths are true over here and these truths are true over here. Well, I think I think the what I want part, and that was one of my uh, the things that jumped out at me in our list, our bulleted list, is humans want. I think it starts off maybe four or five bullets start off with humans want. Um, I, I think it's a lot less about what humans want and more about what actually is. Um, and I, I don't know that I get bogged down in what I want as much as what I accept um, from reality. One of the things that I'm, that I'm getting a taste of here, which is, is really interesting to me, is that there's a very, or it seems to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you guys don't want to completely throw out the stories of religion, of, of the past, as if they were in some sense still valid, as if they weren't the way I view them, which is really some of our first, maybe not first, but second or third attempts at trying to explain what is, you know, uh, metaphysics and epistemology. How do we know what is? And doing so from they were doing so in from a place where they didn't have the kind of tools that we have now so now we all have a worldview that's steeped in science i think everybody here uh, accepts evolution and climate change and and stuff like that and perhaps not but uh, from some of the things that you guys have said it sounds like you do um it seems to me interesting to try to back your way into let's say the account of genesis knowing about the big bang and saying, well, that sounds like the Big Bang to me. Disregarding the fact that before we knew what the Big Bang was and before we knew, before we had the Enlightenment, people did take these texts literally. They thought this was how it started. Not that it was poetry, not that it was anything other than this is how the Earth or the world started. I don't know that you can say that 100%. Um, I'm not saying 100%. I'm just saying this is the vast majority of people, when they said, Mom... How did the how did the world begin? What's our purpose? They went to Genesis and they said God said let there be light and God said this and God said that. We have a story now that we can update. The, the thing we is, we update that, that knowledge. You are you are well. What you just said was people took these stories literally. But the point that I was trying to make is that until the Enlightenment, people wouldn't have known what that sentence even meant. I'm taking this story literally. Right? There's no separation between the literal truth of a story and the place of the story, the place the story holds in culture. Right. Can a story be true and yet not factually be true at the same time? And like, I, I'm assuming we're, we're sort of glossing over the fact that there's many different types of people. 
I'm sure that many people before the Enlightenment read the story in Genesis and thought, that's probably not a fact, like, that's not a direct transcription, right? And other people before that's, the Enlightenment read it and That's what religion thought, claims, is that this was revealed well, by modern, revelation. That's what of, modern yeah. religion claims. No, no, no. And that's what conservative religion That's what religion, religion claims. claims from history, that this was revelation. That's what the Bible says in it. This is revelation. There's a chapter called Revelation. They're right. not claiming that this is not from God. Yeah. Something that's, that's revealed. The author said that Something that's revealed doesn't need to be objective. It can be... So it's revealed is actually subjective. Right. I was so, hoping to do this before we get into objective subjective, but we might as well go. No, there. it's the same conversation. We have to talk it's the about zombies at some point. No, I though. just I just wanted to touch that before we get to objective subjective. But I, I think yeah. No, it's the same conversation. The point that you're the, the questions that you're asking are all delving into the nature of what it means to tell a story. So what I hear when you're talking is that you're not disconnecting the story that we tell about ourselves from scientific facts that we've observed about the origin of human existence. Well, I would say that there are stories that are more closely tied to reality and there are stories that are not. How do you know, how do you know which are which you have to familiarize yourself with evidence and reality? But what's the salvation experience? I'm sorry? What's a salvation experience? A salvation experience is something that I have had. I have been at the altar and I have encountered God and I have been changed. And I cannot measure that in any way. Um, but it doesn't... Like, and I, I, I can know all the facts about how that works. And I can have a scientific worldview, but I've had an encounter with the divine that is existent, whether I can weigh it, measure it, or prove it or not. Like, How are you to differentiate that from a hallucination or from somebody who we know is not having an experience that they think they're having? So, for instance... Well, I don't think I have to, though. I don't, I don't have to defend my experience that way. It is the, the, the call that I received on my life that made me go into ministry is something that is mine. And I, I don't need to justify it to anybody. Um, it is what has motivated and informed my action for over 25 years. So... I guess the... I guess the... I can throw it out if I want to. That's always an option. But the, the other side of this that I just... The one place I'm going to push back a little is that I don't have to... There's nothing that compels me scientifically to throw it away. And I don't necessarily want to. I have allowed it to change. I have changed its meaning. I have updated how I interpret it, given what has happened in the rest of my life. But that moment um, that I can see right now is never going anywhere. Whether, whether I could find a way to measure it or not, do an fMRI to see it or not, it's still there, and, and I'm still choosing to let it inform my practice. And I think that's a, that's a perfect introduction to what I think is the flaw in reasoning that points to this zombie worldview. And the flaw is this, that when objectivity as a concrete set of processes and thought patterns, when we, when we gave birth to that in the Enlightenment... Because that gave us so much new power over reality, right, in ways that we hadn't had before, before we developed that process of thinking, it became a default assumption that objectivity is better than subjectivity, that subjectivity is fundamentally deceptive and conceals reality from us, and objectivity is the new good thing that will reveal reality to us. So are you calling what she had subjective? Yes. Okay, and you calling that more true than objective? What I'm saying is that we, we are not having an objective experience. We cannot have an objective experience. What we can do is run sets, like basically like a software program that simulates objectivity in our minds and try to force ourselves to do that. And if we can get enough people to do that, then they can compare their results and we can come up with our latest hypothesis about what objective reality is like, 
but we're not having an objective experience. We're having a subjective so experience. So we're in the matrix. Exactly. No, I, I, I think that's a stretch. I, I, that's solipsism, and I don't think we're there. I don't think you're. I don't think either of you are, are suggesting that we're in a solipsistic world. That we're all just in our heads, and there is no objective truth. It's I didn't say that there's no objective well, truth. We but can't. We can't solve hard solipsism. That's no. true. We can't say for sure that we are not <clears throat> in the matrix or 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 whatever. But it doesn't even matter if we if we are because we can objectively verify things. We can objective. We can objectively verify that the latest patterns that the smartest person in the room has recognized in objective reality. But that's not objective capital T truth, right? It's well, objective hypothesis. Yeah, I'm not, not sure what you're well, saying. It's there. funny. No, Can but I mean not? this is where this is where it also makes me um, feel like a lot of us, and I don't want to make assumptions, so but this is where it makes me feel like a lot of us, at least in this conversation, are are operating that a lot of us actually aren't sure there's a lot of capital T truth, if any at all. Um, well, it depends on what you mean by capital T truth. Sure. It absolutely does, Paul. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, well, so all I wanted, go ahead. I wanted to sneak in there just with just the, the anecdote that some of our greatest thinkers have told us that some of our greatest thinkers, their writings, um, some of our greatest scientific minds, their writings have, have, uh, reflected, unbelievable science, like take Einstein, for example. Don't know a lot about Einstein's life. Haven't read any biographies. My impression is that he also wrote about lived experience and about actually relationship with science. Um, and, uh, and so I think what makes me uncomfortable about this topic and I, you know, as I listen about it is that, um, and this is, this is why I'm trying to listen in here is that I want to make sure that one thing that I um, really value is not setting up objectivity and subjectivity in opposition, right? Uh, thank and, you. And That's so, where I'm headed. Sure. And so in, in some of our best scientific thinkers, even our, our, our people we put on a pedestal in science, say to us in writings and in interviews that we can see, and these are modern scientific thinkers, right? So you're Einstein's, you're uh, the woman who I'm totally, this is horrifying, but I can't remember the name of the woman who um, studied corn and essentially identified a lot related to DNA. Um, can't remember what her name was. Uh, it's probably a reflection of our American patriarchal education system. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, she reported having a subjective relationship with the material and with the corn, as well as a following a strict scientific method. Um, so, so it's been interesting to, I think this has been a very provocative topic because it, uh, it forces us to, to have this conversation, which I think is important and interesting and, uh, and messy as hell. Well, I was, I was just going to say, I think, I think this idea that subjectivity is somehow more valid than objectivity or objectivism or, I, I just don't understand, I don't understand why they're not sort of the, the opposite sides of the same coin. You can't have an objective experience without two subjects. And so... Wait a minute, that's not exactly true, Right. I see this cup. Right. Right? This cup is an object. It's not yes. a subject. This cup cannot be a subject, right? No. What do you mean by can't have an objective experience without two subjects? You, you, we can't say objectively that that cup exists without two subjects or more to verify it. So, her religious experience, right? You were at the altar and you, you felt the presence of God that can't be verified by another subject. That oh, can't be verified do. by me or no, him but they or do. her. In my tradition, they do. Well, it's they don't, though. But they do, because it's imperative... They say they do. ...that I'm able to express that in a believable way. Then can you do it now? 
Can you objectively show me this experience with God? I can tell you my experience. That's all I can do. You can't demonstrate it. Well, but you hearing it is sharing in that experience. Can you demonstrate it? Do you want me to preach? Well, I, that's I, not demonstration. I think what I what I would sure like to do I is want, to take I want to actually if, hear if you her can't preach. A demonstrate. Bit, <laughs> I'm okay with a little bit of a timeout and a little. Uh, <laughs> hey, thanks to our sponsors, yada yada yada. Janelle, you should preach right now. <laughs> the thing is, I, I I would like to take us through a little exercise that shows that what we call objectivity is actually the same thing. Right? Same it's, thing as what? Sorry. As as what you're saying, her religious experience was objectivity is a process that's nestled inside that, right? So, for example. can Nate, and I want to go through this exercise, um, and I, I just, I, I have to mention, right, like something, and, and I think you recognize this, Paul, something as personal as, you know, vocation, hard to, without the expression of whether it's religious or not, like if someone feels a deep connection to vocation or whatever, whatever the case hard to express and in, you know, in a rational, objective way without, you know, human emotion and all the things that we have associated with that. I just felt like I wanted to call that out before we go through the oh, No, say, th- say that again. I, I didn't quite understand what you were getting at. Um, well, I think like, uh, I mean, I think that that's where for me, like, in terms of subjectivity and objectivity debate, right? That human experience plays a role somewhere, right? And a powerful role, um, but isn't, but my position would be it's not the only role. So like the example of Janelle talking about the experience of having a vocational call, whether it's to the, to to, uh, you know, to preaching or to whatever the case, like that's, that's a difficult thing to, to, um, to objectively uh, um, express. It's funny though, because like, okay, so if we we want to talk about ministry for a second, because several of us have served in different roles, one of the ways that they make ministry objective is that I'm accountable for how many people I do this to or this to or this to. So I'm accountable for how many people I baptized this year, how many people I've led through salvation, how many people were sanctified, how many people are showing up on Sunday morning, how my Sunday school is doing, how much it grows, how big is my VBS, how many kids it. are coming for the first time, what are my tithe numbers, am I bringing in the money? But none of that objectively proves that God talked to you at the altar. No, it doesn't, but it certainly and that's is the their question. attempt to. But that doesn't matter. Because if I, if I miss on those metrics, then, then what is questioned is not whether or not I'm a charismatic leader and a narcissist. What's questioned is whether or not God called me. But you can, you can baptize as many babies as you want, and it says nothing about whether God exists. And it says nothing about whether the experience you had was actually an experience of God. Or if that's just what you think it was. Then maybe part of religion is part of what's brought us to this place. I mean, maybe this helps answer the question because we were brought up in systems that say that I can measure your spiritual experience. I can measure meaning in your life. And if you walk away from this, you no longer have any way to know whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. And so, no, it's not like if you broke that down into a proof Totally fails. I get it, but like the way that then we, what are we talking about? But the way that we experience as humans is that I'm being told that this thing is measurable, and that it is quantifiable, and that it is, um, well, is evaluative quantity, of my worth if I fail or not. Right. That's what the, the questions you're asking. I'm suggesting are questions that have crept into the lexicon of questions that belong at the top order. If you can't prove in an objective materialist framework that this thing happened to you, then it's not real. But actually, that runs completely counter to the way that most, like 99% of our experience happens. I would disagree with that. Okay, so let's go through this exercise, right? Yes. So you see this this empty cup sitting in front of me. I do. So what I'm going to assert is that that cup does not exist in reality. Okay? That cup is a pattern that my brain presents to me. But this cup is a discrete object, does not exist, right? There's molecules on the bottom of this cup bleeding into this table right now, and 
back upward from the table into the cup, right? So the pattern of the cup that I see is useful to me. It's a great tool. I can reach out and grasp it with my hand. I can pour things in it. I can drink from it. It's a very useful tool. But the cup doesn't exist in reality. It's a pattern that I see. And every pattern that I see will also have some nebulosity associated with it, which is not captured by the pattern. You with me so far? Have I said anything that disqualifies me from saying anything else? No, no, you, you can say whatever you like, but the cup does exist but, in reality. You said but. You can't say no, but. And you can say, you can say whatever you want, and the cup does exist in reality. Do you, do you agree with my assertion that the pattern, which I call the cup, does not fully capture the reality of what the object is? What reality does it not capture? There's molecules from the cup which are bleeding into the table and molecules from the table which are bleeding into the cup. I agree that you did not evolve with the senses that allow you to see things at the molecular level. Right? Correct. Right. So you can't see the quarks in there. You can't so see the, the pattern that I interact the with. Quarks or the protons. Right. But you didn't evolve to be able to see that. That's okay. That's okay. But I can understand that the pattern that I'm interacting with doesn't fully capture reality. There's nebulosity which bleeds it out. It doesn't fully capture reality, but it does not negate reality. That does exist. The and cup it does exist. It doesn't matter if I want to drink out of the cup. That's correct. To say the cup doesn't exist is a false statement. Just because no, we no, can't no. see it in its entirety, There's, in the sense like we can't see its quarks, doesn't mean it does not exist. There, it just means you can't see the entirety of, but, of but its cup, existence, all the details. Cup creates a concept and a category which only exists in my mind. It does not exist in reality. Reality is its own model. If I could fully comprehend reality, I would be able to perceive each particle of the cup and each molecule, and even below that, and below that, and below that, and below that, right? If I was participating with reality, I would see all of those things. But I, I don't disagree. see all of those things. I think you're still, you're still participating in reality, even though you have limitations in your, in your ability I'm, to I'm, be able to see molecules. I'm interacting with a, with a pattern that I can perceive that's useful to me. But aren't, I mean, but where we've heard this kind of language before, and if I'm totally wrong, that's fine. But I mean, this is very Socratic. Like, this is his ideal image of the thing, but it's not really the thing. I mean, that's that's old so, thinking that that goes before enlightenment so, and before the awarenesses that we have now that we're trying to wrestle so with. So I said this was going to sound like mental masturbation. I am going somewhere with this, right? I'm not just trying to get you to assent to this in order to trick you, you into something which is I'm going here, to sound... Okay. <laughs> We've already had at least three people here who right. masturbated so, on their own. It, and Dan, it, you can edit that out <laughs> if you like or keep it in there because it's keep it funny. In, Dan. Okay, so imagine... What I said in for sure. Imagine that you are a, um, uh, a hunter on the plains of Africa 20,000 years ago right? And you've got your spear and you're going to go hunt a gazelle, right? So I understand that when I throw my spear at the gazelle, I have to throw it upward because it's going to arc back downward before it hits the gazelle, right? So let's say that I have some sort of Aristotelian notion about why that's happening, right? I say the wood came from a tree, the tree came from the ground, the spear wants to return to the ground. You're talking about telos, right? Aristotelian would be theology, Talking about how things that's have a right, purpose. That's right. They act according to their nature. Right. right? Okay. So the spear moves back toward the we'll earth sure because it's, it's telos is that it's it's earthy. The bird can fly because it has some property which makes it flighty. Right? Okay. Now, my understanding of why the spear wants to move toward the earth is incorrect. But I can still use my understanding in a way that allows me to use the spear as a tool that works. Right? Okay, now fast forward, uh, I don't know, 20,000, however many thousand years, right? To 19,400 years or 600 years and get to Isaac Newton. And I say, well, actually what's happening here is that the mass of the spear and the mass of the earth exist in some ratio to each other that causes the spear to be attracted toward the earth, right? If I can measure the mass of the spear and I have some idea what the mass of the earth is, then... Now my new story fits the data that I have much better, right? Correct. But actually, that story is just as much nonsense as the story of the spear chucker from Africa 20,000 years prior. Because, according to Einstein, 
what's actually happening is that the mass of the Earth is causing a dip in the fabric of space-time. And when I throw my spear, it's moving in a straight line. It just appears to be bent because of the way that the Earth distorts space-time, right? Two things about that. Go ahead. First, in order for your analogy to be correct, you'd have to say the spear doesn't exist because I don't understand it fully the way it's working in space-time. Okay. As you said, the cup doesn't exist. Secondly, it's not nonsense what Newton said. He did describe the ratio correctly. Einstein added the cosmological constant, which describes the bending of space-time. You can derive Newton from Einstein and vice versa. In local environments, right? I can derive Newton. I don't know how that's relevant. It's relevant. I don't even know what that means, but... What I mean is In local environments, you're on Earth, right? Yes. Okay, so we're, we're local. Yes. And you could go to Mars and it would be yes. the exact same? Yes. Okay, so even in non-local environments, that's the same. Well, you need to understand the mass of Mars in order to do the calculation correct on Mars. If you True. went to Mars with the idea that gravity is an uh, accelerating force, 9.8 meters per second, whatever, then you would be incorrect, right? I know this is this is all sounds like I'm 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 not going anywhere, but here's my point. No, no, you're going somewhere. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to reel you in from this notion that the cup is not real. That is the, definitely a cup and it's definitely real. And do you know how I know? Go for it. Because I can verify its validity in ob- it's an objective real thing. Me as a subject can verify that subjectively. You as an object can verify it subjectively, and so can everybody at this table. But, but and there's no argument as to whether or not that cup exists. There is, and you've already illustrated why there's an argument, right? For example, how many people in this group have had a religious experience? Okay, I think so. We've all had religious out of experiences. Six said yes. I'm not right? going to tell you all which one said no. <laughs> so we've the all had religious yes. experiences, but you don't believe that that's a. V- a validator of the religious experience as a whole. I don't think you'd say that. I think you'd have to elaborate more to... Okay, let me do an even easier one. I would or not, sorry. We can't see anything up there, but we we can all see that star, right? So we can all agree on the size of that star, but we would all be completely wrong about how big that star actually is based on our senses. So we don't really believe in sense verification as a method of determining what the objective reality is, there's a lot of other things that we build into how we do objective verification through I science. I don't think anybody would, would reject the idea that your senses can be deceiving. In other words, a star is really, really far away, and so I can't say for sure just by looking at it how big it is, but I can say for sure how big it appears to be. But that doesn't mean that's how big it is. But, but I, you're we, using the same senses we to all tell see me that the this star, cup exists. Right? So the star exists? Just because I don't know how big it is doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? For it to be analogous to what you said initially about the cup, it means the star doesn't exist if I can't see it on a molecular level. Okay, so now let's take it, let's take it one step Hold further. Hold on, answer that. What's that? Does the star exist? The star exists in my perception. Does it exist? Do things exist outside of your head, or are you a solipsist? Uh, okay, so you, we, we still haven't gotten to the <laughs> Do point... Do I exist? We still haven't gotten to the point that I'm trying to make, which is this. The spear, which doesn't exist, but I perceive the spear, I can use that as a tool to kill the gazelle and but stay will it alive, kill right? a zombie? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> only if it goes through his brain. <laughs> I think we're only talking about the spear because of your last name. <laughs> that's right, that's right. The concept of gravity... I wish your last name was Bacon. <laughs> the concept Bacon. of gravity, as articulated by Newton, was not the law that they thought it was. It didn't exist in reality in the way that they thought it did, but it was still a useful tool with which to do useful calculations. So what I would stipulate that what science is doing is continually giving us new tools to grapple with reality. Right? Okay. You don't think reality exists. No, what I'm saying is that reality is its own model. The material that I perceive as this cup exists for sure, but I have to call it a cup because I can't perceive all of reality and deal with it directly. 
I have to deal with the categories that my mind gives me to perceive reality. Right? What would you call it if you could see it on a molecular level or the quarks? What would, would you not call it a cup? Does it not hold beer? How could I answer that question, right? I call it a spoon. <laughs> That's right. There is no spoon. There is no spoon. Is no spoon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So can we, uh, can, can we move on for the, for the sake of time uh, and mental okay. masturbation we're, we're, pause? No, we're, we're so close. Sure. Let me let me just you, get to okay, the you, end you, of you my point. Are you a debater's two-minute rebuttal warning? Okay, and then we're going to okay. move on to the I'm last sorry. question. I know, this, I know this sounds esoteric, but here is my point. The process that's led us to objective thinking, right? The process of observe, hypothesis, test, repeat, right? That's the same process through natural selection, which has created our subjective experience of reality with one crucial difference, which is that our subjective reality doesn't get the repeatability of science. We don't get to have the exact same experience over and over again in order to isolate one variable. So our subjective reality has evolved to be able to process the constant unfolding and flux and flow of the reality that we're participating in. So, our subjective reality is presenting us with patterns which are incredibly useful to us as tools. One minute. Those patterns are not the same types of patterns that we can observe when we use the replicability of science to observe patterns in reality. And I feel that what we've done by saying objective ways of processing the world are superior to subjective ways of processing the world is to devalue these incredibly powerful tools that we've been given, some of which don't correspond directly to things in the objective world, things like love, things like an experience of the transcendental, etc., etc. But there's no reason, there's no proof of the notion that we should value objective, objectively derived tools higher than we value our subjectively derived tools. Ooh, All right. Three seconds to spare. So mm. objective, love it. Subjective, love it. Let's move on. I think the last... I'll let the audience decide yeah, where the, the contradiction was in like, all Why of that. Why did he leave us hanging? We're going to... This is, this is the second... This is part two, by the way, guys. This is part two. We are officially into one hour and 32 minutes. And how many seconds do you know? Uh, three. It's ticking. So Nate or Nathan, I like to call him Nate, Spears, by the way, because of that spear, spear. reference earlier. You like that one? So he asks us this question. He says, that, do you see an increasing desire for spiritual meaning arising in American culture? And I think this has a lot to do with your subjective versus objective, or let's just call them the same in their own paradoxical oneness. I, I say, yeah, because, and I'll go back to the point I made earlier where people just go through the motions. You know, we, we go to church, we sit down, we stand up, we listen to a sermon. Yeah, we don't know if he's a good sermon, so we may, you know, wander and think about other things that we have to do and whatnot. And um, I, I think we we need that. So recently, some of you may know, because I posed this question with a few of us here in the group, uh, the question of the soul lately has been on my mind or on my heart, whether that's objective or subjective, you know, whether the two of these, you know, crazy debaters can tell me we will decide but uh, the soul is something that you can't really objectively make sense of uh, the soul is something that is a mysterious word it doesn't mean a spirit that floats off in the clouds it's something that's within you uh, something that drives you that uh, allows you to make sense of the world that creates anxiety depression that gives you uh, meaning that gives you uh, passion it's the thing that within you that like if you if you don't tap into it will kill you because you're going to dive into other things that will fulfill that soul so for me the question of the soul is is on my mind hashtag heart mind spirit because i think they're all the same it's integrated it's all interconnected 
creating like a spiritual awakening within oneself. Like what, who does that? What does that? Is that within? Is that outside of you? Because assuming that we have something called a soul and I'm not saying some, again, something that floats off into the sky, but something deeper within us. Um, how do we, how do we make sense of that? And if people are tapping into that and that reality, uh, what wakes it up, what kills it? Because I think this all relates to zombies at the end of the day. At the end of the day, if you're not tapping into your soul, you're, you are a zombie. Am I correct? Right. And so one of the things about the fear that we are zombies, this, you know, this unconscious fear that we might not have a soul, I put this in my original eight-page manifesto, and I think Janelle liked it, this idea that one of the things, one of the mistakes we make when we try to project a system that's inside our head onto the universe is that we lose this sort of direct knowledge that we have that whatever a soul is, whatever a spirit is, I feel that I am one. I'm having this experience of being a soul, of being a person, of being a unique human being. And I don't need to rationalize that. I can just accept that it's true as part of my experience and go from, excuse me, and go from there. So you see all these people. I mean, we had a lovely woman at our, at our table last week who identified as spiritual, but not religious. And that's the largest category of, um, of person in America right now. And as far as, uh, as far as religious affiliation, right? The largest category is spiritual, but not religious. And I think that expresses this desire that people have to reject these eternalist systems that, that purport to be able to sell the capital T truth, but they do still want to feel a spiritual first person subjective sense of meaning in their own existence. That's, that's what I take from that. What do you guys think about that? I don't think they want to feel it. I think they do feel it. I think that it, for many people, it is present. Um, and I think we see that played out in a lot of different ways in our lives, whether it's our interests. Uh, often, I think musicians and artists talk that way about having this internal thing that is part of their, um, just what fuels them, what, what brings them creativity, what helps them move forward. Um, I don't know. It's really hard. I think we, we have created spaces where we can only talk about soul in certain ways. And that limits kind of the dream of what, what does it actually mean in each of us individually? Um, even I'll even go so far as say, even if it's just biology in chemicals, um, I think there is for a lot of people though, something that they identify as me, um, that's separate from what they would say is their brain or their intellect whether I can prove that or not, I don't know. But I think it definitely is part of the human experience. And, and I don't think it matters if you can separate them or not. I mean, and that's, that's also my sort of pastoral compassionate side that says what actually makes you tick is worthwhile not only to you, but it affects those around you, your husband, your friends, those that you interact with on a daily basis. So how is it, as John Wesley would say, how is it with your soul? That's a tough question to ask because you're like, oh, nobody, nobody asks that question because we're so objective. We're so, I mean, we, we live in this world to which uh, nobody really cares about. I, I'm going to agree with Nate. Nobody really cares about the subjective. I'm agreeing with Nate. What is happening? I, uh, I this is interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is a fascinating conversation. Um, because, uh, there's something about there's something about people's and I'm I'm speaking in like modern day the shortest of of histories right so let's say the last since the industrial revolution or whatever the case right like people there are there are uh subjective experiences right people's experience people like uh that that make people desire connection whether that be with other people in some way shape or form whether that's debate communing over 
religion, communing over like-mindedness, communing over debate, uh, connection with other human beings, connection with nature, connection with um, like oneness, right? Like connection with, with the, the cosmos. Um, and so, uh, so people seem to continually desire that. Now, whether the formal church is breaking down, there's probably studies that would tell us that the formal church is, is hurting in terms of like the formal Christian church, consumer church is hurting right now. But I, I, if there is, I'm not aware of those. Um, but people seem to still, um, desire this, uh, connection. Right. And I think one of, I mean, one of the reasons I participate in this community of brew theology is because I think one of the most sort of, to use a religious word, sacred, or one of the most, uh, um, amazing things we can do is sort of hold dialogue, hold communion with one another, agreeing, disagreeing, um, respecting one another. I think that that's critical. And this is one of the ways that I, I search, right? The, one of the ways that I, um, connect and, uh, and search for meaning or, or whatever the case, if you will. So, um, I feel like I forgot your initial question, but it prompted (laughs) me to think about, Connection and community, you'll be shocked. Community, right? And uh, in Palmer, who's a Quaker, so he's a claimed Christian writer, uh, you know, his stated mission would be to connect soul and role, right? And so anyway, uh, the con- the connection piece, I think, is something that people tend to seek. Like, we have all these movements of put down your phone, the minimalist podcast, uh, you know, all these things where people are really working to connect with their intellect, connect with the earth, connect with one another, um, connect with their body. And, uh, I think that's evidence of people searching, right? And I think that's just it is, and you, and you had said it like for you, it's community and connection. And so, and for, for others, it, it is, maybe it's going out up to the mountains and it's experiencing something that they're still connected to the earth, something beyond themselves, but like, ah, oh, they can't do other people. Now, eventually, they're going to have to encounter other people, because if not, like there, there are issues at, at, at some point, right? You, you, <laughs> we live in a society. Yeah, we do for sure. <laughs> and then, but what? What? I'm sorry. What, what is it that that gives you that gives your soul joy? That gives that thing within you. You call it whatever you want. I don't. I'm just calling it soul. That's the word that we have. You can call it energy. You can call it force. You can call it goodness. What? What subjectively allows you to participate? beyond yourself for the betterment of the world so that you yourself don't die. Crickets in the background, because there's actually crickets in the background. <laughs> what were you going to say, though? Learning. Before he asked, posed that question, what were you going to say? Oh, well, I was going to go say also as well on the, on the backside of it, because we always, you know, we want to connect spiritually and as someone asks those deep questions. But how many times do we say, hey, how you doing? And we just give the blanket answers of, eh, I'm doing okay. Yeah, it's, 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 it's that dichotomy, though, that, yes, we want that deeper connection and everything like that. But when we're truly asked or when, you know, how are you? You know, what have you been up to, you know? This goes back to a, a comment Nate made, which Nate, I, so well said, I thought, we actually are not prepared with the tools to engage in that. I really, I, I, as someone who has worked in higher education for a long time, I really believe that. And that's I, why we need Brene Brown. Amen. Amen, sister. Um, well, and I think it's an interesting conversation. I talked to the woman who quoted Pam Eisenbaum in her talk at Wits End Brewery. What was her name? And Dunlap. And Dunlap. And I engage in a conversation of, in terms of, you know, for people to really engage in critical thinking in an educational environment, do they actually have to experience a spiritual shift in their consciousness um, to be able to engage in that way? And uh, Nate, I think you're right. People are not prepared with the, the tools to go into those environments and engage 
until they have the breakdown, until they have the deconstruction, right? And we know this from like educational theory too, the banking model to the liberal education model, the I am the sage on the stage, the professor who shall impart knowledge into your brain that you shall then carry forward to the, the knowledge is actually in the middle of the room. The topic is in the middle of the room and we're all going to pick at the, we're all going to pick at it and we're all going to engage in a conversation about that topic or knowledge or whatever the case. So I think that's interesting, right? So to your point, Christina, are we, do we have the tools and I don't know that they're like something we teach widely. And the other thing I have to call out in the midst of this conversation as we're talking is like uh, people have said it in our brew theology group, we are the elite, right? We are a lot of us at the, t- at the uh, circle here have a formal education. A lot of us advanced degrees, advanced degrees. A lot of us have uh, the uh, ability to go hang out in a, a brew pub on Thursday nights and engage in these topics as opposed to worrying about where the next meal comes. Or and we're super smart. I mean, <laughs> right. I'm the smartest right. guy that I know personally. Um, I think that we do have the tools, but those tools revi- require us to be vulnerable. And, and that's where the fear that even expresses itself in zombies, I think ties into this, like to be vulnerable, we have to put ourselves out there and we have to tell the things that are real about us and we have to share and we have to be willing to be hurt um, by others sometimes. And I think what's reflected in this topic at large is that we're afraid. We spend a lot of time in our lives being afraid of things, being afraid of being hurt, being afraid of being killed being afraid of catching a disease or not having enough. And, and so we, it's hard to be vulnerable and answer honestly, how are you doing and how is my soul? Because then I'm giving you a weapon that you can use against me. Because if I really reveal to you that I'm the weakest antelope, um, then you can use that against me to harm me. And, and I don't know, I don't know quite how that's, where we've gotten, like, I don't know how we got there as a society. I think a lot of it has to do with image and presenting yourself as all together and everything's working and everything's fine and, and all of those kinds of systems. But if we really want to meet people, um, one-on-one in a way that is going to change the way the world functions, you have to take a risk. And the last thing you want to do when zombie apocalypse is on the horizon is take a risk because you could wind up dead. Yeah, right. Well, and uh, I have a harder time with the zombie thing, but I, <laughs> but I, I will say, right, like there are few places where people feel they'll be listened to and heard mm-hmm. non-judgmentally, and uh, and that's, this is one of them. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's. I feel that way. That's one of the reasons I love this community. Uh, And that, that's like something so personal to me is uh, individually is in, and I think to this group, but, and it's what draws me to this group or connects me to this group is we have few places where we can go and feel as though we can um, uh, express, speak non-judgmental and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't find that on social media, so I don't particularly mm-hmm. participate in it as much. And that's, I know that sounds judgment. I really mean that as a non-judgmental statement. Um, oh, I think it's pretty true. Sure. And, um, so anyway, I think that that's, that speaks to that thing where I'm like, oh, where, why can't we have more places and spaces where that's a critical piece of the environment or whatever the case, I don't know. Well, this, this might take a bit of time to unpack, but this really strikes me as interesting because, and uh, I think I've been potentially painted as, or or maybe even self-identified as, somebody who is in some way against the subjective experience, uh, or, or views it negatively. And I think, I think I'd modify that to say that I have great um, interest in and um, in. I encourage people to have subjective 
you know, air quotes, religious experiences or experiences that, that make them feel like they're a part of something greater than themselves or make them feel like they're, you know, a, a key that unlocks a door to something uh, numinous or, or uh, something that's grander than them. I, I'm very interested in those experiences. I've had those experiences myself and I, I try to cultivate those experiences in myself through different methodologies, med- meditation, drugs, uh, sexual experiences, uh, just being close and intimate with somebody, not even physically, but just intellectually speaking with somebody. Um, so I don't, I don't want to paint subjectivity as a negative. I think it is a necessary element of objectivity. And I think it's also a very positive aspect of our human experience. But I think it's interesting that people feel, as you pointed out, maybe afraid or, or reluctant to share their subjective experiences. And I think that that's interesting because we do have an objective reality to now bounce our subjective experiences off of. So if you claim, for instance, as you did, that you had a religious experience at the altar and, and you were touched by God. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm putting words Close into your enough. mouth. You said something similar to that, though. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. That now, given the enlightenment, given what we know about reality, given what we know about how to verify reality, that now rubs up against something other people can reject or accept based on their understanding of scientific knowledge. Sure. And there therein lies the vulnerability. Right. It didn't used to be that way. It would it was vulnerable in the sense that your God might be different from my God. And your tribe grew up in a different place than mine did. And now for some reason we're intermingling and you're saying, Well, Ra, you know, flew across the sky in a canoe and that's where the stars came from. And I say, No, 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 no. Uh, you know, Yahweh spoke the stars into existence after he said, let there be light. He went through a series of other, um, you know, he conjured up other things via the word. Now, both of those statements, both of those are equally as invalid, equally as unverifiable, equally as nonsensical. But there is actually a legitimate reality that these statements now brush up against that we are all a part of because of our of the zeitgeist of of our day. You can't even even fundamentalist Christians that have been homeschooled and completely sheltered cannot deny some scientific knowledge. Probably more than anybody that existed 2000 years ago or 6000 years ago or 10000 years ago or 12000 years ago. They are probably smarter than any of those people and they probably know more than any of those people. And they carry it around in their pocket. And they have it. Yeah, it's there for you anytime you want it. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it's interesting to me that therein lies the vulnerability. That your personal belief that you claim you have a soul or you claim that you're a part of something greater than you or you claim that you had a religious experience or, or whatever your claim is, now brushes up against reality and anybody can Google what reality actually is or anybody can have read the, the necessary literature or documentation and actually know what reality is and they can call you out. And that becomes very personal. Mm-hmm. It becomes very personal when somebody says, and I hope, you know... I'm fine. I hope I did rub up against you personally a little bit in a sense that I... I, I I thought that's what I was brought here to do in some sense, right? Is to question and, and, and to engage. Yeah. Uh, but not in a not in a negative way. Um, but in lies the invulnerability. Now your personal experiences, your subjective experiences, if you say I had this experience and that mean God's that means God exists, that rubs up against an actual reality that can be verified, demonstrated, you know, validated. And so in, in lies the the dance. Right. Right? Hopefully that made sense. Hopefully that was articulated. So I think, I think we're so close together, except that we just have inverted priorities of, of what we want to give preference to, which is objective data or subjective data. I feel the exact same way in the opposite respect, which is that I have a deep recognition and understanding that objective truths... 
signify real patterns in reality. And on top of that, I deeply reject the notion that I should have to accept someone else's religious experience as proof of anything, right? I think that's where cults come from, and I think that's where, um, that's just where people get off track in terms of, well, this person had an, had a divine experience and says this, and I believe them, so that I'm going to base my behavior on their experience, right? So I, re- I reject that, and I reject, I reject that pretty deeply. What I think has become really useful for me is understanding the limits of rationalism as a set of tools that can tell me about patterns in reality. I've come to recognize that being overly rationalistic and trying to force myself to adhere to certain standards of evidence is not how I actually live most of my life. For most of my life, I don't doubt the data that my senses are giving me, right? I, I accept it as representative of what's actually happening in reality. And in terms of your question about how do we extract meaning from our, or, or how do we find meaning in our experiences? Hold on, before you, before you move on, let me just push up against that for a second. That's fine. It'll be 30 seconds. I think you I think you reject that objective reality at your own peril. You say you prefer the subjective. Well, if you get cancer, you can subjectively say whatever you want, but objectively you have cancer. And objectively it's going to be chemotherapy or some other process that cures you. Now you can go and pray and you can go to snake charmers or you can go buy magic rocks or you can do whatever you want and subjectively you may prefer that. But that's not going to help you, and so your preferences really don't really don't matter in that sense. And that's that's what I think the key is, right? The key is recognizing that what you prefer, and and you know humans want, right? That's how a lot of those bullet points started. It that's I think that's the point I would drive home is that it doesn't matter what we want. What matters is demonstrably true. That's what matters. I would argue that if you have cancer. You may be in the snake charmers, prayers, chemotherapy, and whatever. I mean, and, I, and I've seen this, and I think if you've lived long enough, you're going to see this. It's how do you live your last days? Um, how do you experience life? How do you find passion? How do you find comfort and warmth and goodness? And I've seen friends beyond oh, uh, the chemo and the prayers, and I've seen all this, like, friends who've gone through all of that, the spiritual aspect and the scientific stuff, and they've died. How do you live to the fullest at the end? And unfortunately, it takes us to that point to go back to those who are quote unquote healthy, which, hey, we're all the walking dead here, right? All right. We all have cancer. We do technically. So how are you going to live your life? What makes you tick? And I think that's that's the most important thing. I and I don't think you can objectively or sub, it's a subjective thing. Sure, I, we're, you know we're parsing things left and right, but at the end of the day, like what's going to make you breathe in and say, "Yeah, I did it." You know, that's I right. actually did this thing well. That's right. And and I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I think I've tried to deal with that perspective. And maybe we could, you know, we can take this offline or keep continuing to the debate. Or have because, another podcast. Yeah. Um, Let's keep it public. But as, as far as, as what I, I think, um, how we find meaning in our own existence, I think one of the lessons that we've had to learn, one of the things that the Enlightenment has taught us, is that what we don't get to do is rest in this notion that we have capital T truth, Right. We don't get to say, this is the system that's presented me with a picture of ultimate reality. I read this great quote uh, recently about the Pharisees and what it must have been like to be a Pharisee. You were living by the system that you understood to be the best system, right? Assuming that you are a Pharisee who's engaging with all of the Jewish law in the best faith that you possibly could, 
right? You were the holiest man that you knew, and everybody around you recognized that you were the holiest man that you knew. And then Jesus comes along and says, you're a whitewashed sepulcher, right? You've committed yourself to this system, and you're dead inside. And then Jesus said, like, I haven't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law, right? So he's pointing at the fact that even when we lay down all these rules for how to find meaning in our existence, there's a spirit behind the rule, and we have to find the spirit and live that, and we don't get to take refuge in easy answers. I'd also point to one more system of meaning-making that I think is, is deeply relevant, which is, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the idea of uh, spiral dynamics or any of Keegan's work, in which he talks about these levels of consciousness that we go through. In spiral dynamics, the idea is that we move back and forward in our consciousness through understanding ourselves as an individual and understanding ourselves as a member of a group. So a three-year-old thinks of himself as a radical individualist, right? He's, he's all about his ego and fulfilling his desires. And you get a little older and you're like, oh, people, there's other people. I should be respectful of their desires. I think that's the, and, and you go back and forth between understanding what's important between trying to represent your own interests in life and trying to represent the group's interests in life. And that's how you keep ascending these scales of achieving higher consciousness. And I think that's the pattern that we've seen through all of life, right? First, you have a single cell organism. Then you have uh, one cell absorbing a mitochondria and becoming something greater than it was before. Then you have one cell joining together into many cells and forming multicellular organisms, then you have that going back to representing itself for its own interests. So the, the multicellular organism becomes another individual. You have multiple multicellular organisms joining together as organs into an organism. Then you start to be able to generate a brain and consciousness. So we see this constant movement back and forth between individuality and communism in life. And I think that that pursuit is how we find meaning in our existence as humans between trying to understand ourselves as an individual acting for his own interests in the world and who we are as part of the group, as part of our society. How do we act to benefit everyone? And what's the right balance there? And we keep going back and forth between those concerns, trying to figure out exactly who we are as ourselves and who we are as a member of a group. And when we can act in ways that are win-win-win, for ourselves, for the group, for all of humanity. Then we find our deepest meaning, but we don't get any easy rules or any easy roles to say, do this and everything will work out great. We're always having to negotiate, sort of ride the wave of what's happening now. What's happening now has never happened before. And there's a, there's a deep fulfillment to be found in finding just the right place to be, just the right thing to do to represent all those interests. You're here. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And note to all selves, nobody was a dick. See how that works? I might have been. At the end of the night, at the end of the day. The jury's out. If you have five to ten people in a small group table, you can actually dialogue well. So cheers, everybody. If you like cheers. it, share it on the line. Brewtheology.org, Brewtheology, Facebook and Instagram, Brew underscore theology on Twitter. And thanks to uh, Paul, to Rob, Nate for the content, Christina, Janelle. And can I thank myself? Okay, you there can. we go. There's that. And the Have lovely night. The this is a great night. So thank you, Denver, for the beautiful weather. Peace. Peace.